With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I am your host. I am Dave Hellman. We're doing it again. We're already at week eight. Hard to say midpoint of the season when there's 17 weeks, but we're we're right in that range where we're halfway through Thursday night football on deck. We're going to take you through a preview for Tampa Bay at Buffalo on this Thursday night. A lot of news and notes from around the league. We will get to all of that, but as we've been doing all year, it's Thursday. It's time for another edition of the Cheat Sheet with Peter Schrager, presented by Honda. Joined now by my buddy, Peter Schrager. Peter? Like I just said, it's it's officially mid-season for this edition of the cheat sheet. And this is these are the stories that make me laugh and the stuff that I try to keep in mind when I think back to the summer and the off-season and all the arguing that we do, MVP odds and the playoff picture and who's going to take the next step and who's not and it's so fitting that we're starting the cheat sheet this week with the Chicago Bears because Justin Fields was in the middle of that entire conversation throughout the offseason. And here we are in the middle of the season talking about Tyson Bagent. I'll be completely honest with you, man. I do this for a living. I'm a preseason football junkie. I try to watch as much preseason as I can. I have no clue who this guy was up until last week. Can you can you fill me in? You know, a bunch of guys didn't play in the senior bowl this year down in Mobile and they invited a division two quarterback at a shepherd Tyson Bajan. And it was kind of like a fun story because they don't usually invite division two players. And they invited two guys. They invited him and his teammate, Joey Fisher. So you have these two division two guys with the, the shepherd Rams helmet on during practice, but because the practices were on NFL plus not NFL network this is real, you know, in the weed stuff for football diehards. And everyone was able to watch the, the practices. So you didn't get the same buzz that you'd usually do at the senior bowl, senior bowl itself, you know, Tyson Bajan plays in it. It's a fun factoid. And then, Throughout the draft process, he's talked about he was in the combine. Like, it wasn't like he wasn't at the combine. Didn't get drafted, and then he completely, you know, just just waits his turn and signs on with the Bears. Uh, and I had an opportunity because I do my podcast, and I was like, I need to know more about this guy. Now, the fun anecdote on him is that obviously he goes to the Division Two school, and he's the first Division Two quarterback 
to be an undrafted rookie to start a game since 1950. Also, his father is a world champion arm wrestler. I'm sure you've seen the footage of him wrestling Tom Pelissero from NFL Network. It's, it's incredible. I've it's watched great. it like five times. And he, and he basically like he takes Tom, who's a great guy, and he just completely works him. And he just basically talks to him like a he's like, just I'm your daddy. And this is how it's going to go. And don't fight this. And like, it's just so demeaning. But um, his father's a huge personality, Travis Bajan. But but Tyson is kind of quiet and there's not much there as far as like big personality, big swag or anything like this. So he makes the bears and then in an odd move, they, they released Nathan Peterman in like training camp and they elevated this guy and they're like, all right, Justin Fields is our one and Tyson Bajant is our two. And I think a lot of people rose their eyebrows. They're like, what the hell? The undrafted rookie free agents, your number two. And you've got all the eggs in uh, this basket of Tyson of Justin Fields. Well, Fields gets hurt because Fields is a mobile quarterback and it's bound to happen. So here we go. Tyson Bajant fills in for him and played well against the Vikings in a loss. Then he gets to start last week and he was excellent. He was 21 to 26, 160 yards, no turnovers, and they blew out the Raiders. Now, the hilarious thing is you go from playing division two ball at Shepherd, which is a small school in West Virginia that houses, I think, 4,000 fans in the stands. That was less than a year ago. Obviously, he was doing that. He was playing Bloomsburg this week last year in a big Division II showdown. Now he's on Sunday Night Football, and Mike Tirico and Chris Collinsworth are calling his game for you know 50 million people. How many people watch, stream it online, everything? On Sunday night, they play the Chargers of all places in L.A., Hollywood, great Hollywood story. Uh, so for my podcast, I'm like, I want to talk to someone who knows him. I, I got in touch with their the head coach of Shepard and this guy named Ed McCook, and stuff he was saying was fascinating. Like Tyson Bajant was an incredible high school athlete, wasn't recruited anywhere. The only schools that recruited him were Albany up in New York and Robert Morris in Pittsburgh. Um, and then he decided to stay close to home. I think he lives like 20 minutes from wherever Shepherd is in West Virginia. That's where he grew up. And he started four years and was a two-time Heisman Trophy winner in college and then just kind of falls off the radar. And like, at no point did this coach ever doubt that he would be in the NFL. It's just, it was one of those things that when you're not a high recruit and you're not, and you're in a small school, you don't get the same accolades. You don't get the same media exposure, but now that he's in the NFL, it's like he and Bryce Young are both rookie quarterbacks. And we're talking about him more than the Alabama quarterback who went first overall. What's crazy about that too. And I've, I've thought about this a lot over the years, particularly recently with Dallas, even you know, Cooper Rush played big time college football compared to a guy like Tyson Bajan. But like mm -hmm. you can go from being an undrafted free agent. And if you get a chance to start and you play well, it's not an exaggeration to say that that is life changing because like, I mean, who who knows who knows how it goes against the Chargers? Who knows what the future holds for Tyson Bajan? But like one start is theoretically enough to keep you in the NFL for like at least a couple Dude. more years, worst case scenario, you know, Cooper rush, Cooper rush will be a backup in the league for 10 years. And it's because and he played already, against, he's already made like, you know, six, $7 million by the way. And he played against the Vikings in a Sunday night game on national TV and he won. And it was like, that's, we know he can do it. You know, Taylor Heineke was in the league bounced around from Minnesota to, to some, to mint to, then he ended up having to go to the XFL, but then, plays a couple of games with the Washington Redskins, goes to the playoffs, plays well in a playoff game against Brady. Heineke's going to be in the league for 10 more. You know, like Heineke's got a right. Brock Purdy was the seventh overall, uh, seventh round pick, Mr. Irrelevant. We thought that was a storybook story. Started three years at Iowa State and like was a very good college quarterback. 
this dude was playing Bloomsburg last year at this time. And now he's on Sunday night football. And the story, it's like almost like I always, I said to the coach, you know, I was talking to him, like, it sort of sounds like Paul Bunyan, like tall tale stuff. But, and I tweeted out the video of him talking about it, but he's like, because we don't have a athletic facility necessarily like an Alabama or an Ohio state for training him and his roommates, like they would chop down. Yeah. They're like log- bench pressing logs, right? Logs of wood. And you think, well, it's 2023. This isn't Rocky four. This isn't 1984. Like this isn't like 80s Russia, but he's bench pressing logs of wood and there's video of it. And then they didn't have a cold tub and the school can't afford a cold tub. So they carved one out. They hollowed one out out of the Potomac River, which is like, I guess, like a mile away from this field. Like it just sounds, it, it all does. It's, it's like Friday Night Lights or something, but it's all true. And he himself, Tyson, is like super low key, super religious. All those tattoos are all faith based and is like super unnerved by everything. Like none of this stuff is a surprise to him. It's almost like he's been put on this earth to do this. And whereas everyone else thinks this is some crazy, goofy story, it's just like, no, this was this is this is what's going down. This is how it's gonna go down, and this is what's gonna happen all along. I can't I can't shake the idea of like, you know, in this day and age, if you have any kind of draftable grade, your agents got you at like one of the Exos facilities. Right? And you're, you know, state of the art, you're on a regimen, you're training for the combine drills, and this guy's making his own cold tub in the Potomac River. Following it out of the Potomac River. And the, and the coach, McCook, who's a character in himself, Ernie McCook is his name. And Ernie's like, and I'm not talking July, I'm talking February. He's in the cold tub in February because that's who he is. Like, I love it. The other story, which is crazy is this summer he's undrafted and he's signed with the bears. And the reason he signed with the bears, he had other offers was because he saw a path to making the bears. So he signs with the bears and he's and like, the coach is like all his friends were either graduated and getting their first jobs. And they were all out partying or they were all going to the beach every day for six weeks when he wasn't in bears camp as an undrafted guy would go to the field at shepherd, which is in you know West Virginia. And his friend would sit on the sideline with a cell phone and the cell phone would go to an AirPod or an AirBud in the ear of the quarterback. And he was reading Luke Getze's playbook and doing the calls. So he was simulating the calls in the middle of this field for six straight weeks, every day for hours. His friend is on a cell phone reading the bears playbook to him, like the extended calls so that he could be at the line of scrimmage and simulate it. The only person out there, the calls, the cadence, the thing. So that by the time he got to actual training camp, he had it down and sure enough, he knew the offense as well as anybody. And they were blown away in Chicago. They're like, what the hell is this? How do you know all this? How are you a master? He's like, well, I did it every day for six weeks with my friend. I mean, crazy stuff. Man. And like, even, I mean, let's just, let's even say that this is like a down game by Sunday night football standards. You're still talking about 35, 40 million people watching him play on Sunday night. Yeah. Internationally. Yeah, for sure. With all the streaming numbers and like, you know, not to break the fourth wall here, but I talked to a lot of the different sideline reporters and I talked to a lot of the different broadcasters and like Melissa Stark reached out to me yesterday because she saw I interviewed McCook. She's like, we're we're all at the same, like we're all at the base level. Like there's a few articles on this guy and it's not like one of these things where Everyone know you know with Bryce Young. There's been a high school coach. There's been a Elite Eleven camp. There's been a college coach. There's been all the All Star stuff. And with this guy, it's like we're all at we're all at the first. Like there's been a couple articles and a couple of little puff pieces done. And and the Chicago media has done a great job, like trying to catch up. But 
there's going to be new stories that come out. So Melissa Stark was like, what else you got on this guy? I'm, I'm working from, you know, trying to gather my own stuff. So I love that. I feel like there's more things to be on. There's more story to be told. It's not just, it's already well tricked. CJ Stroud, we talked about for, you know, 10 years, uh, Justin Fields, we talked about at Georgia. And then we talked about at Ohio state and now he's in the pros. This guy, there's nothing like it is. It is. We're all new to it. So I think that's a pretty cool, rare deal. Oh, and I mean, like I said, we'll we'll see how far it goes. It's in the Bears' best interest to play Justin Fields when he's healthy, just so they need to get a read on how good he is and whether or not they. What if they win again, him. though? What if they win? Oh, are we gonna? Are we doing that? Are we gonna? Why have not? That? I mean, if if they win, and Justin Fields, from what I've been told from Bears sources, and you saw it in the um, saw it in the locker room footage when Eberflus gave Bajent the game ball. Fields has been great. Fields was in with him like late hours, and that was my report on Fox last week that Fields was working with Bajent into the wee hours of the night, like getting down the offense. So Fields has like taken him under his wing. But if you're the Bears and you win a couple games with this guy and Fields is still coming back from the thumb injury, it's like, what's the rush? I don't know. It, to me, it's this is a cool... If he goes into LA, and I think there's going to be a lot of Bears fans there, a lot of Bears fans probably booked this sure. trip a long time ago. And the Chargers are a two-win team who are you know falling apart. If Bajent wins a second straight game, I don't know. I'm curious to see what happens from there on out. I mean, okay, I I hear you, and and I think the big thing is like don't rush Fields back, especially you know a hand injury. There's no reason to, but if, if you can't grip the ball, but that's where I mean, unfortunately, politics eventually yeah. get in the way of feel good stories. I mean, the Bears have to figure out if like is Justin Fields worth a fifth year option? Is Justin Fields a guy we want to build around? I mean. Should we be taking a hard look at Caleb Williams or any number of other quarterbacks? Like, I mean, I get it. That gets in the way of the storybook. And I <laughs> look, I'm rooting for Tyson Bajan, but man, it would it would have to like, oh, what an incredible story if he really played well enough to keep a guy like that on the bench in this situation. Yeah, I have no I have no precedent for it. I'm trying to think of like a small like because it's not like fields is a colt mccoy or a josh mccown type or a jacoby Brissett who's been around fields is a young guy too i mean fields is under the age of 20 like i guess cousins and griffin came in the same draft and ultimately the washington chose cousins over griffin and he was a fourth round pick and griffin was a first round pick but even cousins came from michigan state and was like a big name guy this is there's nothing i mean for the guy from shepherd to come and take the job from the guy from ohio state it would be mind-boggling. Which this this is all me. This is reckless nonsense. This is not coming from our NFL insider Peter Schrager. But like, imagine if Tyson Bagent played well enough on Sunday. Trade deadlines on Halloween. Somebody's <laughs> like, hey, I mean, this kid's uh, this kid's pretty good for y'all. What do you think? What are, what are you doing with Fields? Part ways with Justin Fields for like a third round pick? What are we talking about here? Yeah. No. I, I, again, I think <laughs> I think I'm with you, and I think Poles and Eberflus have been pretty. Uh, steady and saying that this is Fields' job no matter what, but I don't know. I, I felt the same way in New York. I got, I know the backup quarterback's always the most popular guy, but like I watched the Giants the last two weeks. That team fights for Terod Taylor. They seem to love playing for Terod Taylor. I saw Jalen Hyatt and I saw Dyron Waller, guys I have not seen in the previous games. And yeah, everyone's just like, well, it's Daniel Jones's job because they're paying him a lot of money. Well, I don't know. What if Terod Taylor is the better quarterback right now and the team's responding better? But you're right. There's politics, there's money, and maybe I'm just living in the storybook and not uh, uh, dollar listed. dollar signs do tend to get in the way. But man, it is. I mean, it's incredibly cool. Like you already said it, but like think about how and and rightfully so. But like we were so wrapped up in the Brock Purdy story 
And that's still a guy that was a Heisman candidate at one yeah, point during yeah. his college career in the Big 12. So and was handing the ball off to Brees Hall and had Will McDonald a first round pick on the other side of the ball, like and had Matt yeah. Campbell as a coach. Ed McCook, in all due respect, I, there's not a, he hasn't churned out 16 first round picks, and there's no other players at Shepherd who are going to the NFL this year. You know, so uh, Shepherd University, uh, West Virginia. They are currently in a, having a nice little season and they play the power that is Bloomsburg this weekend. So we'll see what happens. You never know where the NFL season is going to take you. I love it a lot. Another thing I wanted to touch on the, the exact opposite uh, mm-hmm. from the smallest of the small to uh, the biggest of big time wide receivers. Now we don't, we don't have to get into the Kevin Byard trade too deeply. I mean, he, he just got traded to Philadelphia and I know that Rand Carthon's not the guy that traded AJ Brown to Philadelphia, but like given given Tennessee's history of trades in involving the Eagles, maybe you think they think twice about that, given what AJ Brown's doing in Philly right now. The crazy thing about the AJ Brown trade is that AJ Brown was so young. It was he was like 24 years old. Bayard is on the back end of his career, and it's a nice finishing piece for the Eagles. And he's a Philadelphia kid. He grew up there. So it makes a lot of sense. He was making a lot of money. The Eagles needed a safety. Like it all adds up. Two years removed, the A.J. Brown trade to this day is a head scratcher because every receiver was getting that big payday. And for whatever reason, Tennessee didn't think it was worth doing it for A.J. Brown, who had already established himself as a first, as a number one wide receiver in many ways. He was good with Tennessee. They traded him. Philly quickly signs him to the long-term extension the night of the draft. Like they're like, we got you. We're locking him. Like they, that was the heist of all heists. And then Tennessee used that pick to draft another young wide receiver who I'll do respect. He's had a couple big plays. Traylon Burks has been fine, but he's not AJ Brown. Um, and my point with AJ Brown this week is that, you know, my son is a huge Tyreek Hill fan. He loves watching Tyreek Hill and he's seven years old and he's obsessed with Tyreek Hill and all his friends love Justin Jefferson because they do the, he does the gritty and they do the gritty and they all have the jerseys. Like it's time for kids around the country to be wearing the AJ Brown 11 because his numbers are better than all these guys. And he's on the most dominant team. And every time Philadelphia needs a big play, it's AJ Brown stepping up. I am blown away with how a guy who already was very good has made the leap into being maybe the best receiver in all of football this season. I don't think between the combination of what he does on the field, uh, the, 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 the 11 Jersey, the visor that he wears and the, the fact cleats. that he's, the cleats. The cleats. he's got those b- badass neon cleats. He looks cool. He's usually going to shit talk you after he makes a big play <laughs> like AJ Brown if he's not the coolest receiver in football, he's the most terrifying, in my opinion. Just I mean, Tyree, all, all due respect to Tyreek. I mean, Different. the speed is this the, is just yeah. like and in DK Metcalf might have a better six pack, whatever you want to get into like the physical. AJ Brown is dominating this season. You saw the stat, I think it was cool. And uh he's got now five straight games of 125 receiving yards or more. Only two other players in NFL history have done it. Calvin Johnson and a guy named Pat Studstill who did it for the 1966 Lions. And I would, right. there's a whole story there. But I, I said on our show, I said, you know, 
we always look for nicknames. AJ Brown has like a different kind of Twitter handle. It's like 1K always open. That's not going to be your nickname. So I said with Philly, you've got Megatron in Detroit. This is Mega John. If you know anyone from Philly, everything's a John. <laughs> everything's a John. Like he's a John. Uh, the coffee's a John. The Wawa sub is a John. It's a John. That's a Philly thing. Like everything's oh, called yeah. John. So it's Mega John. And I don't know why it hasn't picked up. And I'm kind of upset that I didn't have the viral sensation I thought I did when I dropped that on Good Morning Football. I think I'm gonna uh I'm gonna slip that to Shady McCoy and see if he see what can he do says. anything with it. Yeah. See, see if what he's Shady on, on board with that's I mean it it it's and I think there's a there's an interesting conversation there about and I think AJ Brown may it wasn't the first one by any means, but like I think you're seeing a a shift in trends where like these these unknown draft picks used to be so, so valuable. And it's like, well, we can't, we can't give you a first. Well, like, how could we do that? And then Philly's like, uh, yeah, we'll take that for AJ Brown. Like, absolutely. Yeah. And I just think more and more you see teams are, you're like, um, the proven commodity oftentimes is going to be a hell of a lot more valuable than whatever guy you draft. Look at the, look at the Christian McCaffrey trade last year. Carolina got cute. They said, let's get three draft picks for Christian McCaffrey. He's a running back. Well, San Francisco gave him $16 million a year and said, we'll give you a two, a three, and a four, whatever it takes. And that trade is 100% lopsided in San Francisco's favor. They just got the best running back in football. So, like, what what are we doing? And would you draft for the two, three, and four? I don't know, but we'll never know because all I know is that San Francisco got Christian McCaffrey and they got a running back to an already awesome offense and have to draft them. And A.J. Brown... I mean, Philly's offense was probably going to be good regardless, but A.J. Brown took that thing into another stratosphere. I mean, Devontae Smith could be a one on most teams, and now instead you've got one of the best twos in the league with that offensive line. I mean, it's it's just incredible what, well, what he's helped them unlock. Devontae Smith was a top 12 pick. I think he went 11th overall, so you have that. Right. A.J. Brown was a first-round pick, or second-round pick of the Titans. They swap him for the first-round pick, but what was good about why they were able to do that is that Philadelphia is so good at the draft and how it, and Howie Roseman gets so much credit for this. They had two picks. So they took Jordan Davis earlier they got their defensive tackle. And then they were able at 17 or 18 trade that to Tennessee because they had the luxury of two picks. And when your GM is smart enough to maneuver and constantly be thinking about that stuff, it gives you a luxury where you can make that kind of swing. Cowboy fans get mad at me because I worship Howie Roseman. And I'm a just lot like, of people sorry. do. Sorry, he's better at it than everybody else. What do you want me to say? All right, one more thing before I get you out of here. I I want to talk about this because it's such a it's such a rare opening. You talked a minute ago about peeling back the curtain with broadcast TV, talking to Melissa Stark. Colts owner Jim Ursay peeled the curtain back in a way that we rarely get to see. Like I think it's a it's an open secret that the NFL communicates with teams about complaints. You know, teams. Teams will voice their concerns about calls. They'll send in tape of things they don't agree with or things they don't like. Typically, that stuff stays in-house. Uh, but when the owner of a team takes to social media, it feels like fair game to me. And, you know, Jim Mersey is on Twitter or X, whatever, the other night saying, uh, you know, the NFL admits and understands that they did not make the correct call. And if you watched the end of Colts Browns, you understand what he's talking about. There were some there were some dubious decisions there, but what a rarity for a member of that club of 32 people to uh to to talk about that in such a public fashion. 
Ursa has been very candid this year. Everything from talking about Daniel Snyder publicly before that was under like a thing that everyone was was doing uh, to this. Like Ursa speaks his mind. Now I'm trying to think about how this went down because I I work for the league uh, at the NFL Network and they're very protective of the integrity of the game, but also the criticism of the refs and also the hard work that the officials and the folks in Park Avenue do to do this. So. I can't imagine. I don't know if it would be Troy Vincent or someone else from that group. Like, I can't imagine them calling Jim Irsay and like apologizing. And that's just not what they do. Usually, it's like, okay, we understand, we take it into consideration. And yet, I don't think Irsay would ever lie. I don't think he's lying. So, the part that I took away from this is he suggested a rule change that the competition committee has actually voted down in the past of under two minutes. Every call is reviewable. And my initial response is, oh, well, these games are going to go on now. And it's going to be, instead of it ending at 4 o'clock Eastern, the games are going to end at 5 o'clock Eastern because every play is going to be reviewed in the final two minutes. And then as I already devote 10 hours of my Sundays to football, I'm like, well, who the hell cares? That sounds like if it gets the right answer. And you know, I, I, I haven't spoken to him about this specifically, but like I look at Sean McVay and that loss that they had. And obviously... Dude, you get, that, you get that terrible pass interference call on Akello Witherspoon, which they're very fortunate Oof. that Deontay Johnson's taunting because that was the worst call of the day. And then the terrible, you know, the the whatever they how they lined up the ball and the measurement of that, and the response from a lot of fans were, "Well, McVeigh had no timeouts left; he botched it." To which I would counter and say, "Are you telling me Sean McVeigh, as a head coach, should always save a timeout on the chance that the refs screw him? Like, is that what the message is on that? That like we have to have extra timeouts in our back pocket just in case the refs really screw up in the final five minutes and you need to use it? Like, no, McVeigh called a timeout earlier, switched out of a play in third down, and they scored a touchdown. So like that timeout was well used. Um, I say all this because it's like if we just got the calls right, we wouldn't be in these." You know, dog eat dog world where like, you know, now the Rams are three and four as opposed to four and three and there's jobs on the line and all that stuff goes down. And now Brett Maher's out of a job and you go through all these different things and it's like, yeah, but if they got the call right. Where are we at? And it's a little different. It at least gives them a chance to fight another day. I My my point of this is you have a competition committee. Ursay's greatest suggestion was that rule change. And I'd like to see them consider it. My controversial opinion for years, and look, I'm anybody that knows me knows I'm a college football junkie. I love the sport, and I get it. College football games can run for a long, long time. I there's got to be a way to meet on both sides of this, but like college football has it right. Just review anything that's close. Yeah, like in anything that looks like it needs a review, just give it a forty second review. Yeah, the game might be fifteen minutes longer, but considering everything that's at stake now. Not jobs, the gambling aspect of layoff it, like bonuses. You're right. Layoff, oh, all the that gambling stuff. thing I, is huge because now it's oh the the Dolphins play the Eagles and it's ten penalties to zero and Dolphins fans say well there's a ref and this is I saw someone wrote me a long email you know these fans they they do their work there's a ref who's from Philly and he was the lion judge and this is because he wants Philly and he probably had money on it and you're like guys like no like stop like this is his livelihood he's not going to risk it to not throw a flag on the you know tush push but yeah you leave yourself open to those criticisms when it's 10 penalties to zero or when you botch calls and you throw that flag on Weatherspoon and I don't know what to say it's like it's such a hard game to officiate it's a thankless job and yet you do have a, a room of people in New York that can change a call on a John's notice the, if they had the ability to do so. 
judgment calls are one thing and nobody's ever going to be purely happy with what refs decide. But the one that really sticks in my craw is the way that Rams game ended. And it's like, well, yeah, that spot sucks, but sorry, Sean, you took a timeout an hour and a half ago and we can't look at it now. I just, that doesn't sit right with me. So I think, uh, yeah, that that's something to watch when an owner is publicly talking about it. I, yeah, I don't know if it leads to any meaningful change, but it's definitely the type of thing that kind of makes you double take when you see. I actually think like, my, about it. my real revolutionary thing, and I know this is like, you know, we're talking about week eight of the season and there's a trade deadline and these teams, this real 30,000 feet. Like maybe we just start all over with the rule book. It's so convoluted and every year it's so confident. Like if you were to draw up the rule book right now, what would you keep? What wouldn't you keep? And I, I don't know. It's, it's a big project and it's not one I care to do, but like, to have every weekend with someone complaining about the refs and the calls and then not knowing the timeout rules and not knowing what's reviewable and what's not reviewable. Like, I don't know if we were to draw it up from scratch right now, like what would we pick? It'd be interesting exercise. Kind of like uh late, the late Mike Leach RIP, who was always like, what do you need this massive play sheet for? Like all my plays can fit on a three by five index card. Yeah. yeah. There's probably something to that. Yeah. Um, That's that. Food for thought heading into week eight. Peter Schrager, as always, love talking to you, man. I love doing it. It's my favorite half hour every week, man. It's cool. Uh, I, I, like I say, every week, I'll send you the Venmo after this. I appreciate <laughs> it. We'll, uh, we'll see how Tyson Bajan does in prime time, my friend. Thanks again. Let's go. All right. Thanks, Dave. A possible big, big quarterback shakeup leading the news here heading into week eight. It's the San Francisco 49ers. Word coming down. Pretty late that Brock Purdy is in concussion protocol for the 49ers. Took a pretty big knock to his head in that game against the Minnesota Vikings. Looked like it happened in the fourth quarter on a quarterback sneak. Like I said, typically you hear about this stuff a little faster usually, although the Niners coming off of a short week, slow to get back to practice as they try to ease their guys into it. This is an interesting spot for San Francisco. Nobody's ruling Brock Purdy out as of right now, but to this point in the season, no player placed in concussion protocol has played the same week. Hasn't happened yet this year where a guy was back on the field within a week of suffering the concussion. Keep in mind, like I just said, the Niners played on Monday. They lost to the Vikings. Seems pretty unlikely that Brock Purdy is going to turn this around, which sets the stage for... I don't want to downplay an injury. Hopefully, Brock Purdy, rooting for you. Hopefully, you're okay. Hopefully, your absence is as short as possible. But opens the door for one of the more intriguing situations in football this season, maybe, in my opinion, because this sets the stage for a potential start from veteran quarterback Sam Darnold. Remember, Sam Darnold signed with San Francisco in March, played two seasons in Carolina. The Jets traded him down to Charlotte. Went, eh, not so great, but there were some highs. There were, there were some ups. There were some downs. He wins the backup job for Trey Lance. He's the backup in San Francisco now. I just mentioned highs. Sam Darnold quietly played pretty damn well last year under interim Carolina coach Steve Wilkes, who is now the defensive coordinator in San Francisco. Funny how stuff like that works out. He sat the first half of last year behind Baker Mayfield and P.J. Walker. Gets his shot in the second half of the season when the Panthers are three and eight. The season's basically lost. Four and two as a starter in Carolina last year. Helped them jump from three and eight to seven and ten. Had a shot to help Steve Wilkes keep the Carolina job. Obviously, they go with Frank Reich instead. Sam Darnold 
some of the better football of his career. Obviously, that's not a lot to speak of for a guy that the New York Jets drafted in the top five, but 4-2 and two record as a starter, averaged 190 yards per game as a passer, completed right around 58% of his passes, seven touchdowns to just three picks, didn't light the world on fire. But remember, this was a Carolina team that was hopeless at midseason, finished with a top 10 draft pick before they traded with the Chicago Bears for number one overall. I'm, I am intrigued to see this, and I'll say it again, hoping for the best for Brock Purdy. But this is a case study I've wanted to see since Sam Darnold signed in San Francisco because what is the knock on Brock Purdy? What is the criticism that he can't escape right now? It's that anybody can do what you do. You're with the 49ers. You have Kyle Shanahan and you have a dozen pro bowlers, a whole bunch of all pros. You've got all the talent in the world and a great coach to scheme it up for you. Of course you look great, Brock Purdy. Of course these are your first two losses as a starter a season and a half into your career. Well, here comes Sam Darnold, the number three overall pick in the draft back in 2018. This is not an exaggeration. Sam Darnold is the best blend of experience and talent that Kyle Shanahan has ever had in San Francisco. Yes, he had Matt Ryan in Atlanta. He had RG3 in Washington. But in the Bay, it's always been Jimmy Garoppolo. It's always been Nick Mullins, CJ Beathard, Brock Purdy. Guys, these guys have done a lot of good things. They do not have the talent that gets you drafted in the top five of the NFL draft. Talk about a fun experiment, man. What can Sam Darnold do plugged into this offense? If he looks good, what does that suggest about the 49ers situation and their scheme? What does it say? Hey, maybe there is something to the idea that no disrespect to Brock Purdy, but maybe this is a really favorable situation for a guy to wind up in. Now on the flip side, Sam Darnold, Top five pick, number three overall. He's had a lot of opportunities to look good. He's never been in a situation this good, but you know, common wisdom says if you're drafted third overall, you've got the talent to overcome bad situations. What does it say if Sam Darnold struggles? A guy with that arm, with that ability, if he goes in there and we know how good it can look with Brock Purdy and he struggles against Cincinnati this weekend, what does that say? about Brock Purdy and what are people going to be able to come up with to suggest that he's not actually that good. I can't wait to see it. I personally think Sam Darnold could play really well for this team. Yes, the Niners are still missing Debo Samuel, but it sounds like Trent Williams is on his way back to play left tackle. All that talent is there. We know how great it can look with Brock Purdy. What can Sam Darnold do? If it's good, it's going to be really fun and Maybe a feather in the cap for those people that say, yes, when you've got this coach drawing up plays for the quarterback and all of these freaks to run the plays for you, it helps. That's a better way to say it. Not that anybody could do it, but it helps. It would be just as fun, though, to say, hey, he might have been Mr. Irrelevant, but there is something special to Brock Purdy because if Sam Darnold can't lift this offense or get this offense where it needs to be, and Brock Purdy can, you got to give something to the guy. You, we, we don't have to hand him the MVP at midseason, but I think you got to lessen the slander on Brock Purdy's name if Sam Darnold can't even come close to those results. It should be fun. It would be great if, if we don't find out because that would mean Brock Purdy is healthy. That's the end goal. But if he's not, 
What a fun situation for Sam Darnold to step into. And just a just a fun little uh, lab test for football fans everywhere to watch a very, very talented guy in Sam Darnold try to replicate those results. I can't wait to see what it looks like if he does, in fact, play against the Bengals. And as long as we're talking about quarterbacks, let's stick right there and talk about the strange situation in Cleveland that I honestly haven't spent enough time on. This has been brewing the the injury situation with Deshaun Watson for the better part of a month. And between a Browns bye week and the dominant defensive performance and the questions about officiating, somehow quarterback just feels like it's under the radar. But I do think it it is time to kind of rehash what I think is a really weird situation. Deshaun Watson officially ruled out against the Seattle Seahawks this weekend, setting P.J. Walker up to start another game. I believe that's his second start this season. It's a massive improvement to at least know that on Thursday, as opposed to the uncertainty that has surrounded the quarterback position in Cleveland for the last few weeks. So if you haven't followed it closely, a quick recap. Watson suffers a shoulder injury against the Tennessee Titans. Browns head coach Kevin Stefanski says he's medically cleared to play the next week against the Baltimore Ravens. Turns out, not so true. Deshaun Watson doesn't wind up playing against Baltimore. Browns start rookie Dorian Thompson-Robinson got crushed by the Ravens. Fifth round pick starting his first game against one of the best defenses in the league. How else was it supposed to go? Creates a whole storm of drama about the phrase medically cleared. If, if Deshaun was medically cleared to play and he didn't play, what does that mean? What's going on there? Kind of put it on the back burner as the Browns go into their bye week. You say, hey, all right, maybe he wasn't officially ready to play for Baltimore, but with a week off, he'll be fine. Not so, not so much. They get back. They go into game prep for San Francisco. The Browns held the door open for as long as they could. P.J. Walker eventually gets the start. Browns get the win, which again sort of pushes the quarterback uncertainty to the side, the, the fun story of getting that upset against San Francisco. But it does lead to a lot of speculation. Hey, what the hell is going on? If the quarterback's healthy, why isn't he playing? Well, what do we do with this information? Finally, Watson plays against the Colts last week. He takes a big hit, just 12 snaps into the game, only attempted five passes. He gets pulled. Kevin Stefanski says it's a coach's decision because he wants to protect his franchise quarterback, adds that he would start against Seattle, and now here we are where he is clearly not going to start the Browns' reverse course. So Deshaun Watson, the the upshot of all of this, if you haven't heard, he's got a strained muscle around his rotator cuff. It does affect the the strength and and the speed that he can throw the ball. If you watched any of his play against the Colts, did not look like the arm strength that you typically associate with Deshaun Watson. He's undergone an MRI. There's no further damage to the situation from the Colts game. It sure does leave you with a hell of a lot of confusion about what's going on in Cleveland. And I think here's my main takeaway is that the Browns have to figure out a better way to handle the messaging for all of this. And I've seen this time and time again in my, in my years covering teams is I get it. Teams don't want to divulge more than they have to secrecy gamesmanship, give you a leg up. You don't necessarily want other teams knowing 
what's going on with your players, what they can target. Obviously, the injury report helps with that, but you don't have to go into more detail than the NFL rules force you to. But the problem is, when you do stuff like this, it 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 calls into question everything else. It calls into question the Browns' competence for the mis- mixed messaging, for making it seem like whether it's true or not, they don't know what's going on with their quarterback. It leads to speculation, which eventually gets very large and very ridiculous about how much your quarterback even wants to play. That's the situation that's playing out around the Browns right now where people are speculating, does Deshaun Watson want to play football instead of is Deshaun Watson healthy enough to play football? If you're as addicted to social media as I am, you've seen some of the back and forth on on Twitter, Instagram, X, whatever whatever app you you prefer to waste your time with, you see the toxicity kind of play out because nobody knows. And when there's a lack of information, speculation leads the way. I hope for their sake, the Browns did this all on accident because they're incompetent and they don't know how to get on the same page with their messaging. If Deshaun Watson doesn't want to play, and I'm not going to speculate that that's true. I really doubt it. Again, just go watch him play against Indianapolis. And I think you see a guy that doesn't look like he's at a hundred percent, but even if that were the case, the Browns publicly throwing him under the bus by insinuating that he's medically cleared makes even less sense considering they've given him a completely guaranteed contract worth $230 million. Like there's no leverage here that the Browns have. That's the bargain that you make when you give that type of deal to a guy that hasn't played in a year and a half and has a litany of non-football related issues following him into the building. Like to try to play hardball with a quarterback that you've already handed over the keys to the kingdom to, it just doesn't make sense. And that's why the only conclusion I'm left with is that the Browns, were incompetent and off base with how to handle the messaging of an injury and something that could have been as simple as, yeah, Deshaun's going to need three to five weeks to get his shoulder right has now turned into something way, way worse and potentially stupider than that. Hopefully it is a step in the right direction that they've figured out. They can just rule him out at the beginning of a week. Hopefully a month after the fact, they've kind of figured out how to play the situation when your quarterback might not be available for a long time. Quarterbacks miss multiple weeks all the time in this league, as we're going to get to here in a minute. It's not that big of a deal. Didn't need to be a circus. Hopefully the Browns understand that now and they can act accordingly moving forward. But big opportunity for PJ Walker already got one big win against the San Francisco 49ers. Can you follow it up against their NFC West rival this weekend? We will see. A couple other quick updates for you. Colts owner Jim Ursay confirms that Colts quarterback Anthony Richardson underwent surgery on his shoulder successfully. Cowboys cornerback Trayvon Diggs also underwent surgery on his torn ACL on Tuesday. Discovered that all of the other ligaments in, in Trayvon's leg are intact. Great news for his availability in 2024. Wishing for the best for those two guys. More quarterback news. It feels like a, a trend for the last, I don't know, two or three weeks. Remember, Ryan Tannehill injured his ankle in London before the Titans' bye week. He is going to miss this week. Titans rolling with rookie second-round pick Will Levis as the starter. Mike Vrabel did say both Will Levis and Malik Willis are going to play in this game. 
sounds very college, which tracks for an Ohio State Buckeye like Mike Vrabel. You know, the college depth charts say it could be this guy or this guy. So I don't know. Maybe maybe Will Levis will get the first and third, and Malik Willis will have the second and the fourth. I'm intrigued to see Will Levis in particular just because we've barely seen anything. He only played once in the preseason, 9 of 14 with an interception in his only game in the summer. He was limited by injury, so we know next to nothing other than what we remember from him coming out of Kentucky in the draft, fell to the second round. We'll see, man. Look, Something to look forward to. Lots of backup quarterbacks might get the start this week. We already talked about Tyson Bajant with Peter. We've talked about Will Levis. Terod Taylor's status still up in the air. Daniel Jones returning to practice for the New York Giants this week, but Terod Taylor playing pretty good football. I don't know. I would say, hey, Daniel, wait until you're all the way good with that, man, because things are actually looking pretty good over here. Gardner Minshew, we know he's the guy in Indy until further notice. It sounds like Aiden O'Connell might get his second shot this season. The rookie out of Purdue started against the Chargers for the Raiders. It's been Brian Hoyer recently, but it sounds like if Jimmy Garoppolo can't go, it'll be Aiden O'Connell for a second time this season. Let the rookies play. I know you you don't want to pull the plug on a season and say it's over, we can't win with this guy, but you draft these guys for a reason. You already know what Brian Hoyer is. To some degree, the Titans know what Malik Willis is. Let the rookies play. And I it sounds like that's what's happening around the NFL right now, and I, for one, am thrilled to see it. All right, let's talk some Thursday night football. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers heading up to Orchard Park, New York to take on the Buffalo Bills. Game that suddenly everybody desperately needs. A couple short weeks ago, this was a good vibes matchup. Tampa Bay on top of the division. Unexpected success story in the NFC South. Buffalo Bills doing their thing, what they always do. Now, Bucks have lost two in a row. They're sitting at 500, looking up at the Atlanta Falcons in the standings. Obviously, the Buffalo Bills have lost two out of their last three, and the win, which came against the Giants at the buzzer, didn't really feel like a win. Uh, bad, bad vibes in Buffalo. Actually, I looked this up. First or yeah, the first time since 2019, so the first time in four years, the Bills haven't been in first place in their division this late in the season. They've dominated the AFC East since Tom Brady left New England. Still plenty of time to figure it out, but clearly with Miami doing their thing, that is not currently the case. Somebody's got to get right. The headline of this game is it's all about the Bills offense because despite all of the talent on the Bills defense over the last few years, it's the offense that makes this thing go. It's Josh Allen. It's Stephon Diggs. Everybody knows that. And this the, the headline is that there's panic in Buffalo because it just, for whatever reason, doesn't look right. The Bills can't seem to get right. They can't you know, they struggled against the Giants. It's it's been a slog at times over the last few weeks. Offensive coordinator Ken Dorsey replacing Brian Dable last year. Despite the numbers that'll tell you it's all still pretty good, you're gonna come under a lot of scrutiny when it was so so successful under Brian Dable, and there's been plenty of ups and downs in the time since. I think the Bills are still looking to figure out that identity and injuries on the offensive side of the ball now are not going to make that any easier. We'll get to that in a second. But I said this after they lost to the Pats. Scrutinize Ken Dorsey and Josh Allen all you want. Josh Allen 
with a costly pick against New England, that's been a problem for him this year. It's kind of been a thing for him for a lot of his career. The story, the real storyline here for me is the struggles of the Buffalo defense. Like I said, the metrics for the Bills offense are still pretty damn good. They're moving the ball at a good clip. They're scoring points not as well as they would prefer, but again, the standards are really, really high in Buffalo. The Bills defense... We know why. It's because of injuries. You lose Tredavious White. You lose Matt Milano. You lose Daquan Jones. It's a lot of really talented pieces missing, and the Bills look like it. The last two games, they're allowing their opponents to convert 50% on third down. They made Mac Jones and the Patriots offense look as competent as they had since the season opener. A team that just couldn't get right, that just couldn't move the ball or score points, scored 29 of them, against the Bills the other day. Patriots went to the red zone five times in that game. In fact, the Bills have given up 14 trips to the red zone in their last three games. Maybe it doesn't reflect in the final scores. The Jags went down to the red zone four times. They put up 474 yards of offense. The New York Giants got to the red zone five times against the Buffalo Bills. Magically, mercifully, somehow they didn't come away with a single touchdown, and that's why the Bills won that game. But you can't tell me this is a process that leads to success. Again, the Patriots, five trips. They get three touchdowns out of it. They win that game. You're not going to be able to shut people out in the red area every single week. New England Patriots, favorite stat of mine, averaging almost six punts per game this season heading into their matchup against the Bills. They only punted twice. New England was moving the ball, maybe not quite at will, but very, very well. That is the issue for Buffalo more than anything that's going on on the offensive side of the ball. Can they weather all of these injuries? Can their young linebackers and DBs step up and and offset some of that lost production, give you something else to lean on? That is, in fact, the matchup I want to watch more than any other this week. As a matter of fact, the matchup to watch is Mike Evans against these Bills cornerbacks. Take your pick, whether it's Christian Benford, whether it's Dane Jackson. I doubt I doubt Mike Evans is going to spend a ton of time in the slot, but maybe he gets a couple snaps against Teron Johnson. Maybe the second-year guy, Kyer Elam, is in the mix for Buffalo. Regardless, Mike Evans should be a mismatch in this game. The Buccaneers aren't very good at running the ball anyway, so you might as well try to toss the ball up to your perennial Pro Bowl receiver. Mike Evans still doesn't look like he's lost a step, even with a hamstring injury. Guy's averaging 15.6 yards per catch this season. I know it's only midseason, but that's actually higher than his average from any of the last three years. He hasn't averaged that many yards per catch since 2019. Doesn't seem like age is a factor. He had six for 82 against a solid Atlanta defense last week, including a 40-yard touchdown. And I think that's the worry here. Bill's defense, a lot of name power, at least at the start of the season. The results haven't matched it up. Big part of its injuries, I get it. But the Bills have given up 48 explosive plays this season. That's tied for third most in the league. That's rushes of 10-plus yards, receptions of 20-plus yards. They've given up 23 completions of 20-plus yards this season. That's top 10 worst in the league, eighth most. They have a penchant for allowing these types of plays. Again, if you've watched the Bucks, this isn't an offense with a lot of 
cohesive ability to consistently march the field. They don't run the ball very well, but they can chuck it up to their receivers. Mike Evans, the best one among them. Regardless of how the Bills decide to cover him, that's the one I'm watching. Mike Evans still doing his thing at a very high click. He's got 12 catches of 16 or more yards this season. Three of his four touchdowns have come from 28 yards away or further. So plenty of ability to stretch the field if the Bills aren't careful. That's one to watch. And like I just mentioned, it won't be easy. Let's get into who's up and who's down for this game. Chris Godwin in. He was on the injury report, but he upgrades to full participation for on Wednesday's practice. I would assume he would play. Same goes for Baker Mayfield. So two of the more important guys for Mike Evans, I expect to play in this game. Defensive tackle Vita Vea sounds like he might be out for Tampa Bay. That is significant. The Bills, this is going to be a philosophy shift for Josh Allen, I think. Bills rule out tight ends Dawson Knox and Quentin Morris. So your go-to guy at the tight end position, which has been important for the Bills this season, is rookie Dalton Kincaid. He's had a nice season to this point. He had a career high last week against New England. Going to need even more from him. I feel like the bill, like the Bills, the whole reason they drafted Dalton Kincaid is they joked and called it 11 and a half personnel, two tight ends on the field as often as possible. Without Dawson Knox and even without Quentin Morris, I don't know. I think you got to change something. I think the Bills might be using a lot more wide receivers than what they're used to. We'll see how that goes. I'll leave you with a number to know from our wonderful producer, Rhea. Josh Allen, 5 and 0 on Thursdays in his career. But none of those have happened in Buffalo. All five Bills wins under Josh Allen have come on the road. This is his first opportunity to get a Thursday night win in front of Bills Mafia. I'm sure it's going to be rowdy. I hope it's going to be fun. See what happens. Allow me to wrap up today's show with a humbling. It is time for Survivor Picks. Apparently, I'm still going to do this, even though I bit it badly. In week seven, my risky L.A. Rams pick turned to ash in my mouth as the Pittsburgh Steelers escaped L.A. with a win. That's why I was talking to Peter about the review rule. I've never been as upset as I was when I realized Sean McVay wasn't going to be able to review that spot. The Rams go down in a real survivor pool. I guess I'd be eliminated, but guess what? This is my damn show. I'm just going to keep playing. Y'all seem to enjoy it. I like to feel like the smartest guy in the room, even though I'm clearly not. Why not? Why not just pick up where we left off? All right, the Rams didn't work out, but we'll keep this thing going. Hopefully, I can deliver y'all some winners. I always I try to give you multiple options. All right, let's let's take a look at this now. So I'm gonna stick to 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 the order. I'm not gonna give myself more teams. That's cheap. It's week eight. Y'all are y'all are fighting for your lives out here if you're still playing Survivor. We're not restarting. So Baltimore's off the table, the Giants, the Seahawks, the Niners, the Lions, the Dolphins, and now the Rams are unavailable to me. I do think there's a couple of interesting places you can go. And I'm not going to do that this week because it blew up in my face last time. But I do think there's a couple of interesting places you can go if you feel so inclined. If you haven't used the Miami Dolphins, that speaks for itself. I know the Patriots just beat the Bills, but that was at home. Pats going down to Miami. The Pats are terrible in Miami, even when they're good and they're not good. I don't have a problem picking the Dolphins. 
if you've already used that game, I understand. May I offer you the Mad Max survivor pick of the week? Like, if you're really bold. How about the Houston Texans to beat the Carolina Panthers? Yes, I know they're 3-3. Three and three. I know they have their flaws. Clearly, they've lost three games. They're not unbeatable. I know the Panthers are at home coming off of a bye. They just changed the play caller. If they're going to win a game, this feels like a prime opportunity to do it. It's probably why Houston is only favored by three, but they are favored by three on the road. So Vegas thinks of them as a pure touchdown favorite on a neutral field. If you're feeling frisky, if you don't want to use one of the juggernaut teams, my pick would be the Houston Texans. I don't have the guts to do that after what happened last week, so I'm going to keep it simple, stupid. I got the Kansas City Chiefs over the Denver Broncos. I know it's in Denver, but the Chiefs don't lose to the Broncos. Nothing I've seen from Denver since the last time they played, which was like two weeks ago anyway, leads me to believe that this will be different. Broncos could have easily lost to a middling Packer team the other day. Chiefs got their offense in order against the Chargers. Chiefs are riding high. They Again, just keep stacking these wins. The division already looks like it's out of reach. I like the Chiefs. If there's a division road game that you feel good about, it's got to be against the Denver Broncos, who they haven't lost to in eight years. I just don't think that changes on Sunday. I feel good about it. I'm locking in the Chiefs. Yes, I'm going chalk. That's what happens when you try to get cute and it just completely bites you in the ass. So we'll we'll get basic this week, but I don't know. If anybody's getting anything out of this and they take the Texans, tweet me about it for better or for worse. I feel good about it. And I can't wait to make fun of myself when this inevitably ages like whole milk. But that does it for the show. Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, we talked backup quarterbacks. We talked Tyson Bajan. We talked Brock Purdy and Sam Darnold. Bills and Bucks. Hope it's a barn burner. Hope you enjoy. We will be back Friday with our full week eight preview. We'll have Greg Olson. We're going to talk to Chris Myers about the Eagles commanders game. You know how it's going to go. We got a, a, a great slate for you. I can't wait for it. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you digest your NFL on Fox content. I'm Dave. I appreciate it. I will catch you all next time.